Well, good morning, friends. Well, it's, it is indeed Father's Day, and on Father's Day, obviously, you have men in kind of your mind, I guess you would say, in terms of celebrating them. But I, when I think about men, I oftentimes think about the stubbornness of men. I uh, think about how uh, we can sometimes be a little bit hard-headed. And, and this, is, ladies, is not the day where you nudge your husband and go, yeah, see, this is the day where you keep it to yourself. Uh, but he... That's how you celebrate them, okay? It's like, hey, baby, like, let me tell you all the things I do love about you, right? But when I think about this and the text we're going to read, I think about a couple of stubborn men who were at sea, and one of them uh, was uh, the captain of a, of a large ship in which he saw out in the distance, the dark of night, a light that seemed to be um, squared up in the distance with him, in which he got on his radio, and he, he radioed, and he said... Uh, to the opposing light and what he believed was to be a ship, he said, I need you to alter course 10 degrees to the south. And which the reply came of the radio a handful of moments later and said, well, um, I'm going to ask you to alter yours 10 degrees to the north. In which at that point, the captain was a little bit frustrated. He wanted to let him, his his opponent know, hey, listen, I, I'm, I'm actually got rank and seniority. And so to which he said, I am the captain and I'm Captain James Norman. And I'm encouraging you now to alter your vessel 10 degrees to the south. And to which the, the gentleman replied and said, listen, I am seaman, third class, and I'm asking you to move your vessel 10 degrees to the north. And there's this, this battle that just seems to be kind of at hand in the dark of the night. And this, this big ship and this vessel with this captain at hand um, continues to approach this light. He then gets frustrated, but he believes that he's got a card in his back pocket that's going to, in some ways, change something in which he says, not only am I captain, but I am leading a battleship. I am telling you now to alter your course 10 degrees to the south. And to which the person replied, and he said, let me help you understand something, Captain James Norman. You're going to alter your ship right now 10 degrees to the north, or you're going to hit my lighthouse. <laughs> now, stubborn men at sea, obviously, is a challenge. But that's really what James is talking about in James chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. And while you do that, we want to welcome those that are joining us online on our Edgewood campus. They're hanging out with us this morning. And so, hey, friends, can we just give them a warm welcome? Yeah, we're so glad they're with us. Woo! There's also some people joining us online in a variety of places across the state and even a handful across the nation. And so we're glad that they're hanging out with us this morning as well. Uh, friends, uh, as we dive into James chapter 4, what you got to see here is that James is continuing this, this thought of what it looks like to be God's person. Uh, one of the things that he says in James chapter 1 is that, hey, we just want to make sure that we're not merely hears the word and we so deceive ourselves that we would do what God's word says. And then he talks about how we would, in some ways, have the type of conduct in our life that would be, as he talked about in James chapter 3, verse 13, the meekness of wisdom. And the meekness of wisdom is careful to not give preference to others because they're rich or poor. The meekness of wisdom controls the tongue and makes sure that, that the tongue is not divisive or quarrelsome or not easily led astray to set large forests ablaze. And 
And this idea that James is continuing is this contrast between a man who has not only a tamed tongue, but also a man who is tame in his conduct. And then he contrasts that in chapter four to a man who seems to be out of control. One that seems to be stubborn and one who seems to be selfish, which then leads to quarrelsome things in our life. In James chapter 4, verse 1, James asks the question, he says, what is it that causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Now, this idea of war within you is this idea that your flesh, uh, which is the word skene, um, that's not the word. Uh, what is the word? Anybody know that? Somebody got that word, the flesh in the Greek? Sarks, thank you very much, which means flesh. Um, it literally means skin and bone, but it's also the nature, which is natural to man. And so the natural nature of man, that idea there is who we are. So he's saying, look, there's a war that wages within you, which is your flesh, but he is, it's the passions. This word passions there in the Greek is the word hedone. And that word hedone literally means pleasures. So he goes, hey, what is it that causes fights among you? What is it that causes quarrels? What is it that, that starts challenges within your own family, factions, dissensions. What is it? He goes, isn't it your desires? Isn't it your own passions? Isn't it your flesh that does that? And you might wonder, well, okay, what does that even look like? Does that happen in my life? Well, I would say this. Um, I've seen it just this last week in a handful of my family when they're arguing about a particular seat in the car they're going to have. Literally an all out brawl over who gets a particular seat which we oftentimes are like, man, our vehicles apparently are not large enough. We've got to have more seats. But it doesn't stop there. It's about who eats first. Like who's going to get to the mac and cheese first? We have quarrels in a house over who gets to go first in line. Uh, perhaps some of the biggest fights I think I've ever seen in my life have been standing in line in an amusement park. You're going to board a a ride in which you've been waiting long hours for. You've been in line for two or three hours for this incredible amusement ride in which somebody you see cuts in front of a handful of people. I've seen grown men go to war over who got in front of me in line at an amusement park. You might go, okay, but that seems like to be minuscule, and indeed it is. Because we know that grown men in their selfishness have started not only quarrels and fights among us, but their passions that are at war within them in their flesh have started literal wars. Perhaps one that is the most notable that we've seen in recent years is the war of Russia and Ukraine. One in which you view on your TV in some ways you, you struggle to make much sense of it. But it does seem to be not only a power war, but it also seems to be a land grab. It's the idea that I want it, it's mine, I'm going to take it. Now, obviously, we don't know everything that happens behind the scenes, and I think that's true in a lot of situations. But the reality is there are times frequently happening in our life where we want something, we believe that it should be rightfully ours, and our passions, when not under control, when not bridled, lead us to what? Factions. 
But James says it doesn't necessarily stop there, right? Because verse 2, he says, you desire and you don't have, so you murder. Now, he gives this example of murder. And I think what James is trying to do in this particular passage is he is writing this letter to a group of people who's saying, hey, I want you to be set apart in a day and age that's difficult. He goes, you got to be careful that you are a restrained man. You're a restrained woman, that you're bridled. Because if you're not, you, your desire will lead you to a place. Your coveting when you desire something will get you to the place where you would even murder. Now, you might say, well, no, I don't think I would want something so bad that I would murder. And that might be an exaggerated point that James is making. But what he is saying is, this is what mankind is capable of when unrestrained. I can remember reading an article in the 1990s when a particular man was killed for his Air Jordans. Now, that might seem strange, but it happens in our day and age. There are people who are so unrestrained and so unbridled that they desire something that they're not, will, they're not only creating wars and fights and quarrels, but they're willing to have something to the degree that they would take and kill a man for his shoes. That's what James is saying. That's not what the man of God looks like. Matter of fact, he goes on. He says, you covet and you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So what is it that leads to fighting over mac and cheese or a seat in the car or land in the Middle East? What is it that in some ways would bring about such a commotion? It's the desire to have something. And then in your inability to have it right now, you're willing to go to great lengths to accomplish what you set out to do. Now, does that ever happen in our life? And is the man ever willing to step on others to get ahead? Are you ever willing to, in some ways, even at work, in the workplace, are you willing to, to make sure your boss knows how much you do and how little everyone else does in order for you to grab a little more power or potentially a little more control? And, and you might think, well, that's not a huge deal. But I would say this, it is in subtle ways that our desire to have something more creeps in. And it happens in such subtle ways that we oftentimes don't even recognize it in our own lives. We don't think it's a huge deal to fight over a seat in the car, but it certainly reveals more of where our heart is. We may not think it's a big deal to fight over a place in line at an amusement park, but it certainly does reveal something that's happening Jesus said it this way. He said, look, out of the buns of the heart, the mouth speaks. See, what happens and comes out of us is simply the measure of a man inside. And so when James is writing this, he says, look, you don't have, so you're going to great lengths to have what you want. You're willing to murder. But then he presents a conundrum in the latter part of verse two, in which you might see as odd, but he says this. He says, you don't have because you do not ask. So he says, look, the, the man who's pursuing God in the spirit, he goes, the reason you don't have is because you don't ask. So in the contrast of a man who is the meekness of wisdom, James chapter 3, verse 13, the one who is peaceable and pure at the end of James chapter th uh, 3, then he goes, there's a contrast of that man and this man, and the man who desires to live for God, when he needs something, he asks. Now, if you remember that we've talked about this over the course of the last handful of weeks, James is clearly thinking about Jesus. And even as he uh, walked through the Sermon on the Mount, it seems that in many ways, James is paralleling some of that passage. But as I say that too, is think about what Jesus said. I mean, he just even said, hey, how much more will I care for the birds of the year? How much, if I care for them, how much more will I care for you? 
And so as you think about the things that Jesus desires for us to, to know and understand, he says the reason you don't ha have anything is because you don't ask for anything. So the, the problem, the situation that creeps up in the life of a believer not having is because you don't ask. Like, and you think about how guilty we are of that, right? You think about how in some ways redundant our prayer life is. And so yes, you might pray at a meal, and you might pray at bedtime, but in some ways, the redundancy of prayer leaves us with a very minuscule prayer life. Yes, in some ways, we acknowledge that God is in charge, but we don't ask him for the very things. But if you remember in James chapter 1, even verse 5, if any man lacks wisdom, what should you do? You should ask God for it. And there are so many areas, I think, that we don't ask God for something. And, and the question that you have to ask yourself is why not? Why don't we ask God? Is it because we're lazy? Is it because we're apathetic? Is it because we're busy? Pretty, I, I would say, yeah, all of those seem to be true, right? But more than that, when you, as a person who is a created being by the hands of the creator, won't ask the creator who desires to give you good things, you won't ask him for anything. What does that say about who you believe you are with the creator. It means in some ways that you would suggest that I am self-dependent. In some ways, it would acknowledge that I have it under control. In some ways, whether you blame it on apathy or forgetfulness or whatever it is, it suggests that, Lord, I am self-sufficient and I am self-reliant and I can depend upon myself. But the challenge is, is that a man who is self-reliant and dependable upon himself will go to great lengths to keep his power and his dependency upon himself. How far will a man go to maintain his self-reliance? I think that's what James is saying. And he goes, and you have not because you don't ask. You, you, you are not dependent upon God to meet your needs, so therefore you take matters into your own hands and you're willing to go to great lengths to have what you want. And instead, you could trust God and he would give you what you need. That's the point. Continue on. And he doesn't just talk about the person who has no prayer life. He has a person who has a self-centered prayer life. Matter of fact, that's what verse 3 is. He says, you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. So maybe your prayer life is dependable, but when you pray, you're always asking God for what you need and what you want. And it's a self-centered prayer life. Now, who determines whether it's a self-centered prayer life? Perhaps it's God, right? And maybe you aren't getting anything. And you go, well, God, I don't understand why I'm not getting anything. Well, James is saying, well, perhaps it's because you're asking with the wrong motives. Perhaps maybe your heart's not aligned with God. And so the purpose of prayer, and I think it oftentimes can be confusing, is not to beckon God to your service. It's not like the young Aladdin who asked the genie to be at his beck and call. That's not prayer. Prayer is to align our lives by the Spirit of God with what God is doing in our day and age. So we're always seeking to align ourselves with God as opposed to saying, God, will you align yourself with me? And so a foolish man is asking God to do things with wrong motives and nothing's happening. And it's because you're in some ways asking God to move on behalf of your own motives. 
Now, this struck me earlier in the midst of the first service, and it's worth just noting again. Um, and it's really by the Spirit's help that I even see or saw this in the text. But what is the difference between a man who will ask wrongly for God, from God for, for something or the man who will just go and take it from another man? Isn't that the same man? So think about that. What is the difference between the person who goes and is willing to murder for something and the man who continues to ask God with wrong motives? See, it's the same man. The reason it's the same man is because it's presenting a man who is self-sufficient, self-reliant, arrogant, boastful, does something on the outside to make people see him, but on the inside, he's empty and dead, and yet they're willing to go to great lengths to be either promoted or to have what they need. And friends, I presume to believe that people will get what they want in one of two ways. One, they can ask God selfishly for things, or perhaps when he doesn't answer, they'll just go and take it. But it's the same man, which is problematic, right? That's why I think James has such a strong warning in verse four in which he does kind of an Old Testament throwback. He says, hey, you are an adulterous people. Now, when he says this, I think he has a variety of passages in mind. And even as he kind of continues through the next handful of verses, it seems to be as he's taking uh, several different thoughts and compounding them together. He's not going to quote any particular passage of scripture from the Old Testament, as many of the New Testament writers would do. It seems that he takes a compendium of truth from the Old Testament. He kind of wraps it up to make a point. And he starts with the idea of you adulterous people. Now, why does he say that? He goes, look, you're an adulterous person if you have no prayer life or a self-centered prayer life and you're continually arguing and creating factions and quarrels and divisions among other people for your own interest. He goes, that's a problem. That's adultery in your heart. That is in some ways not giving air to the very person who created you and is wanting to give you new life. Now, I presume to believe that James is writing mostly to a, a group of people who are running for their lives in the early church. And historically, we know that James is probably likely the very first source of a, of a, a letter floating around in the early church. And so because of the early date on this, he is talking to people in whom he is saying, hey, you are to be set apart and to be different. But he's, he's talking to a group of people who live in a world of chaos and confusion. And as a result of that, they have much to learn. This is kind of a new thing for them. And I would say that it's true for us as well. But he says, you're an adulterous people. And then he says this, hey, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you can't love both what? God and, then he says mammon, which is money. He says, you can't love both. So what he says is, is when you are pursuing God, you can't have divided interest. Now, let me ask you this question. And just there in the silence of your own heart, how many of us oftentimes have divided interest? How many of us in some ways have subtle ways that our hearts are prone to leave the God we love? You ever look up and you just go, I just feel as if I'm not walking as closely with the Lord as I have been or I once was. You ever feel like in some ways your life as a believer is a roller coaster and in some ways you desire to have more and, and yet you, you seem in some ways to, to be in a dark and a barren and a dry season? Has that ever happened to you? 
Friends, this happens to me. And as a result of that, I think it causes you to ask the question, okay, what is it that I'm pursuing? Where James says, look, you're an adulterous person if you're pursuing the world because friendship with the world is division or enmity with God. You can't have both. You can't say, hey, I want my kingdom here and I also hope, Lord, that you'll store up for me kingdom in the next life. And it seems to be, I think, kind of the, in, in some ways, the narrative of the, of the American church. Like to me, the American church summed up in a lot of ways is come to church, pay up, put up, and shut up. Have your kid pray a prayer by the time they're eight that they would accept Jesus in their heart as their savior. They can go to heaven and then live as if they're going to hell. And that sums up to me, the American church. Half-hearted in devotion, continually measuring on a scale, a proverbial scale in our mind. Have I done enough good to think I'm good enough to be in the kingdom? Or am I continually to be on this scale? It sounds to me a lot like a Muslim or a Hindu. And the problem with a Muslim or a Hindu is they never know if they've done enough. That's the problem with the American Christian too. Scores of people wonder have I been good enough? Have I done enough to be in the presence of God? And let me just settle it for you and the Hindu and the Muslim. No, you have not done enough. No, you are not good enough. No, if you start today, you won't be good enough. No, you can't sin less. You can't cuss less, read your Bible more, and somehow get there. It's not the issue. The issue is God is completely holy. You are living in a world that is unholy. You were born to parents, both of seeds, of the flesh. Therefore, you took on flesh. As a result of that, you are damned to hell. There is a God in heaven who is holy. He cannot let you into his presence. You have enmity with God because you were born into a world that is divided, full of chaos, full of hate, full of men who are willing to go to war to get what they have. And yet we want a relationship with God. And God says, listen, you can't have a relationship with me based off of what you do because you will never do enough. And you might say, well, I'm not that bad. And listen, I would just say, even if you're not that bad, your parents were. And because your parents were and you were bored of both of their seeds, you inherited a sin nature of death regardless if you think you're good or not. And because of that sin nature, there is enmity with God. And we are full of deadly poison. And as a result of that, Jeremiah the prophet said, and our hearts are darkened and they're de deceitful and they're sick. And that is the reality of every single one of our lives. But here's the good news. The good news of the gospel is that while God is holy and you are not, he willingly sent his son Jesus as your substitute. And when you look to Jesus as the one who can substitute himself in your place and you acknowledge that he is sinless and you are sinful, then you can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And the goal of that is that God would pick you to be on his team. I think we get it confused. I'm going to pick God to be on his team. No, I think the key is, is that God in his holiness would reach down in his loving kindness and go, I'm going to pick you to be on my team. And he's not going to pick you on the conditions of what you look like or externally what you've done. He's going to pick you on the conditions of his son. 
and the perfection of his son. And as a result, he's going to, in his loving kindness, take you who is at enmity with God and living in a world, and he's going to bring you onto his team. That's a kind and merciful God. Now, as he does that, he is saying, why would you continue to dangle in a world where you have been at enmity with God? Why, why in many ways, would you desire to live in the slop with the pigs when God's rescued you out? See the picture? Why would you continue to be a dog returning to his vomit if God said, I've got better food for you? Like, surely, friends, there's something better than vomit, right? Like, is that what you all want for Father's Day? Hey, baby, can you just get me a big, like, plate of vomit? That's a good analogy right there. That's what James is saying. He goes, listen, you can't have the world and God. Matter of fact, he goes on in verse 5. He says, do you suppose it is no purpose that the Spirit says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? So he says, do you not know that the Scripture tells you that the Lord has given you his spirit, and, and you could take this in a couple of different ways, but I think the point is the same, and that is that God jealously yearns for the depth of a relationship with you. If he sent his son for you and he brought you onto his team, he desires to have an intimate relationship with you. And so as a result of that, the Old Testament scripture in a variety of places, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 16 and 21, or uh, perhaps in Exodus chapter 20, where the Ten Commandments are laid out in verse 5, there's multiple places that we see that God is a jealous God, which means he does not desire to compete for your affections. He wants all of you. And as a result of that, he says, hey, don't you know that I've given much for you? And whether it's that you have a spirit that is inclined to desire more of God, or it was God's spirit put in you. It doesn't matter. The key is, is that there is a desire for God to have a relationship with you. And friends, I don't know about you, but if you've ever been to the Texas beach, sometimes you can get in a tube and you can place all your stuff there, there on the beach. And as you get in the tube, you get in it for about 15 minutes. And then you look up and you're like, Hey, where are our lawn chairs? Hey, where's our cooler? And you, you realize that it's not there in front of you. And what's happened is you slowly drifted away. And so you got to get out of the water. And then you get out of the water, you start walking back up the beach, and you realize, I'm like, like we just floated like over a quarter of a mile. How easy is it for us to drift slowly in ways we can't always see? And so that's what he says. He goes, be careful that you don't get caught in a conundrum that you have no solution for. Then he says this, verse 6, which is where we would all say amen. He says, but he gives more grace. And the reason that that's important is because I can honestly look up in my life, and at times I believe that my heart is not always in full devotion to my king. Now, let me explain to you this way. I mentioned this several months ago. It seemed to hit kind of in some ways strike a chord with a handful of people, but let me just put it to you this way, and it might be redundant to you, but I think there's a difference between gazing at God and glancing at him. 
There's a difference between reading God's word every morning because you have to and reading God's word because you desire to. There's a difference between being with God's people on a weekend because you have to and being with God's people on a weekend because you desire to. And I would say that there's going to be a couple of different types of people that walk out of this room today. There are those who their hearts are right now aligned with God. And, and in some ways, this is a great encouragement. And I would say there's a myriad of others, including myself, that could be tempted to walk out of here and go, hey, we got another Sunday under our belt. Now, let me explain why I say that. Is because I live in a habitual pattern of preparation. Like I live in the Bible. I have, I have teachings for Regen on Monday nights. I have teachings for student ministry. I have small group curriculum to write. I have a Sunday message that just, listen, friends, it comes around every week, whether I want it or not. In the midst of all of that, I also have a family and I have hopes and dreams and passions and pursuits and hobbies and all those things, right? You ever think I could just kind of get up here and study the text, but my heart not be in it? You think that could happen? It can happen. It happens more than I would desire it to happen. You think that if it can happen for me, you think it could happen for you? Yeah, it can. And I think that's what James is saying. Hey, be careful of that. Be careful that you're not merely doing external things because you're a good moral person that God has saved. Because he says, look, enmity with the world or friendship with the world is enmity with God. Be careful that you're not pursuing things out of your own passions. And then the good news, though, is that he gives grace in those moments. I'm not going to put it for you on the screen, but Spurgeon said it this way, and I think it's just a good visual you could take note of. He says, sin seeks to enter and grace shuts the door. Sin tries to master us, but grace, which is stronger, resists sin and will not permit it. Sin gets us down at times. It puts its foot on our neck. And grace comes to the rescue. Have you ever been to the place where you're like, Lord, I know I'm not walking in the fellowship with you that I should. In some ways, you feel like you're pinned to the floor and the enemy has his foot on your neck. James says, listen, that's when you draw near to God. It is in those moments that you receive God's grace, not on your own merit or not on the merit of a Muslim or a Hindu or on the merit of their own self-righteousness but you draw near to God on the measure of Christ and his righteousness. It's in that moment that you submit to God. Matter of fact, in the latter part of verse six, therefore it says, and it says, God opposed the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And you might ask the question, well, what what in the world does does the the one who's prideful look like? Or what does humility look like? And I'm not gonna read it for you, but in Luke chapter 18, Jesus gives you a parable and he gives you a parable of a Pharisee and a sinner. And the Pharisee goes and and he prays. and He's like, Lord, I'm so thankful I'm not like all these sinners. Lord, I'm so thankful I'm not like all these people. I'm glad that I give of of my tithes and I'm glad that I give of of my, my honor to you. I'm glad I do all the things I'm required. And then it said, but that sinner who could not even lift his head to the heavens recognized not only the error of his way, but he's some ways confessed that he was indeed a sinner. And Jesus asked the question, hey, which one is better? 
the man who goes and religiously has it all together, but his heart is far from God, or the one who recognizes that he is depleted and he is sinful and wretched, but receives grace. That's the person we want to be. We want to have humility, and humility means that we would submit. That's why he says in verse 7, submit, and he uses the word hupotasso. Everybody say hupotasso. Okay, not everybody did it, and I know that there are like four people in Edgewood who did it, so we're going to try it again. Everybody say hupotasso. Hupotasso literally means yield. So the next time you're in the car with somebody who doesn't know their Greek, you see a yield sign, and you say, hey, look, that sign says hupotasso. Y'all got it? It creates some interesting conversation. What is hubotasso? It literally means to yield. It means to submit. Now, in our culture, we submit in a variety of different ways. But I can tell you two ways that you can submit, okay? Um, One is you get pulled over by an officer late at night, and he asks you to get out of his car. There's really two ways you're going to get out of your car. There's an easy way, and there's a more difficult way. Both will bring submission. There's one way, and if an officer gets you out of your car, you start out like this. And you just kind of get out of your car. Now, what does this symbolize? Surrender. It says, it says I surrender. It means I am not bringing my will against yours. It also says, please don't put me down on the ground face down. That's what it says. It says, I surrender. I yield. It's hupotasso. Now, I presume to believe there's another way in which you could also surrender, and that's before a judge, and that's this. Now, look, if you resist that, I would say there's another way that you might surrender, and it's this, right? (laughs) Perhaps this. Now, let me ask you a question. Are all of those signs of surrender? Okay, so here's how God will teach you. Ready? He'll teach the arrogant by pain. And then he'll teach the humble through surrender. And so when he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then he says, submit. He's using that word, hupotasso, yield. It's a military term that says rank, file, and order. Okay, so in our house, it's um, I've got a son and then I have a father and we all kind of live close together. Well, I have my middle son. His name's Caleb. He's 11. And Caleb calls my dad, which is his grandfather, Big Chief. Okay, um, he's Papa, but most of the time it's Big Chief. Now, in this conversation of being Big Chief, Caleb is Indian. He's Little Indian, and so you got Little Indian, Big Chief. Which handful, of, you know, years ago, I'm like, hey, dude, where do I fit in in this scenario? And Caleb goes, "You're the general." I'm like, "Cool, I'm the general." Awesome. I'm like, "Hey, isn't a general better than Big Chief?" And he goes, "Heck, no. You're." It's big chief, it's general, and it's Indian. Now, what is Caleb communicating to me? There's an order. That's what James is saying. Submit yourselves. And the question is, is who do you submit yourselves to? He says, you submit yourselves therefore to what? God. And he says, and you resist the devil and he will flee from you. So, hey, you want the plan for attack when you receive grace? He says, draw near to God. That's what he continues in verse 8. And he will draw near to you. So how do you draw near to God? In your self-reliance? In your egotistical manner? No. You draw near to God in your humility. And he'll get you there either through pain or he'll get you there through precepts. Pain means you'll learn the hard way 
and no discipline seems pleasant at the time, Hebrews 12, or you'll get there because you desire God's word. So you can learn in one of two ways, pain or precepts. Either way, it's when you submit yourself to God that he'll draw near to you. So you draw near to him and he'll draw near to you. Now you might ask the question, okay, in this moment, Brandon, how do I draw near to God? James answers the question. He goes, here's what you do. You cleanse your hands, you sinners. You purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. So you think that laughter and happiness and joy comes from the world? Hey, you're wrong. You'll seek and you'll never find. But if you'll seek the Lord with all your heart, you'll what? You'll find him. And it's when you find him that you'll realize there is no happiness in the world and that all those things are empty. And so when you take your laughter and your joy and you turn it to mourning and sorrow and you acknowledge that God is in charge, rank, file, and order, he's the commander and you're the civilian. If you remember what Paul wrote to Timothy, don't get entangled in civilian affairs. He just keeps in mind that as God is your commander, you willingly follow him. And instead of you telling him to alter his degrees, 10 degrees to the south, you listen and you alter your life according to his will. And you always stay true north. You fix your eyes on things above, not on earthly things, not on things that disappoint. And how do you do that? He says you Cleanse your hands. Now, in the Old Testament, it literally would be a, a, a way in which Israel would work. They, they would cleanse themselves externally. There were measures they would have to take to approach God. Here, there is no measurement. We're not encouraging you to walk out of here today and before you come to God in repentance, go wash your hands. That's not what he's saying. He's giving a metaphorical idea of saying, here's what it looks like. It looks like you coming before God and humbling yourself and saying, Lord, I've missed it. I've been off course. I've drifted down the beach, but I'm returning. And I'm returning, Lord, with sincerity. And I'm returning in humility. And I'm returning, Lord, in tears. Lord, I'm sorry for the things I've done. Lord, I'm sorry for the ways I've committed treachery against you. Lord, I'm sorry for the ways that I've been self-reliant and proud. And here's the deal, Lord, I'm sorry for the subtle ways that it creeps up in my life that I don't recognize without the help of your spirit. Because here's what I want you to know, and this might sound arrogant. Friends, I would consider myself a person who loves God, and I would also consider myself to be someone who is pretty moral. In the sense that I don't find myself going to God in repentance because my eyes have wandered off. I don't find myself going to God in repentance because, Lord, I, I stumbled into this habitual sin. I walked into this place again, and God, I'm so sorry. Now, I've been there before in my life, but it's been decades. Now I live a life, and in some ways, the problem with me is that I go week to week in self-dependence. I've created such a, a pattern for myself to know what to do and when to do it I've created so many sermons that I have on file that I can easily breeze through a text. Yes, I will occasionally forget a Greek word here and there. But in a lot of ways, I can be tempted to be self-reliant. And that's a problem. It's as much of the problem as the person who stumbles into darkness habitually over and over again. Do you see the point? 
And so what does James say? He just says, hey, humble yourselves before the Lord and he'll exalt you. So it's when you come to him in humility and you cleanse your hands and you're wretched and you're mourn, you mourn. It's when you recognize the error of your ways and, and your sinfulness and you do genuinely come before the Lord and you go, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm self-dependent. I continually make my own plans. I continually get ahead of you. I continually make decisions without real prayerfulness. I continually lead people to do things that I don't always do myself. It's there that God meets you with grace. See, the only time in our lives that we come to God this way is not merely in our salvation. It's also in our sanctification. Yes, in our salvation, we didn't necessarily know that we needed to come like this, but we should. But as we grow more mature, friends, the more that we draw near to God and the more he draws near to us, the more we recognize how much humility we really have to have before a sovereign God and how much more grace we need from a sovereign God. And by God's grace, he continually gives it to those who will submit themselves and yield their lives to him. And I pray that would be our charge today, that we would all do that. Here's the reality. He is not merely a big chief. He is the God of the universe. And we are mere ants, mortals in a universe that is larger than we can comprehend. And as David says, who are we that God is mindful of us? That he cares about us is an amazing thing. We have a father who loves us. And we have a father who will restore us in gentleness anytime we'll come in humility. And so may the Lord make all of our hearts more humble and teachable. And may we exalt him more and more as we experience his spirit in our lives. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. And thank you, Lord, that in the midst of land grabs and power struggles in our culture, Lord. Thank you that we can be different. Thank you that in our workplace that we can be different and we can trust you in all circumstances. Even when things don't go our way, Lord, we can believe that you are in charge and that things happen for a reason. But Lord, in the midst of that, I pray that we are not a prayerless people. But I pray, Lord, that we're continually praying in all things and in all ways. That we're, we're, we're not anxious for anything, but by prayer and supplication that we continue to come before you presenting our request to you. And I pray that in our request, Lord, we're not merely trying to strike up our own ego or, or come up with a new F-250, but Lord, that we're, we're genuinely coming to seek to be your man or woman. Like in our request, it's, it's not about what you can do for us, but it's about how we can serve and align ourselves with you. Lord, I pray that you would help me not to get caught in civilian affairs. Lord, help me not to be a person, Lord, who is, is quick to anger, who's quick to, and hasty to, to say hurtful things. Lord, I pray that my life is not centered on money and greed, or even on earthly satisfaction, I pray, Lord, that I would be a man that resolves to be like you. And I pray that for my friends here. But I know it's not possible without your help. And so I pray that your help 
would enable us to be your people and that you would saturate our lives with your presence and we would be dependent on you every minute and every hour of the day. We thank you for this text. We thank you for the men in this room that are fathers. And we thank you, Lord, that even when we didn't have faithful examples of fathers in our own life, that we have a faithful example of a father in the scriptures that loves us and cares for us. I just pray that today we're reminded that no matter what we've done, no matter where we've been or what's been done to us, that you love us and you have a purpose and a plan for those who will find hope in your son, Jesus Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.